To my left, I have a new American Standard 1995. To my right, I have a new King James. <laughs> Open Bible. <laughs> All right, let me pray to get us started here. Father, we ask you to bless our looking at your word today because it's so wonderful. And we don't want to miss the essence of it for the technical issues or the complicated parts, but we do want to address that as well. So we ask for your help in Christ's name. All right, so we are in these final portions, and these are kind of, there's a couple of challenging passages in, in chapter 5, more so than all the rest of the book, so we'll be doing that for the next couple of weeks. But we also, um, there aren't many places in the New Testament where there's like a whole section that is like, doesn't appear in all the manuscripts of the Bible. There's only a few spots like that that are, you know, down through the ages, and this is one of those sections, so we have to talk about that. So in verse 7 of chapter 5, your Bible might say something different than the person sitting next to you, <laughs> and today's passage is just one of those days. So um, uh, it's not a matter of translation. There, the actual words in the text are different, or missing, I should say, in, in some versions, and or added. You, you can look at it both ways. So um, we'll wait, let's wait on that. We're going to get there. Um, there's also interpretive challenges to the text we're going to look at today, today's passage. Um, what does John mean by what he says? We're always pursuing that. What does the author mean by what he says? So now a lot of times people read casually and come up with sort of different ideas, but this text is a little bit dif difficult, so the, the best minds in the world that study the Bible have all come up with different ideas. So we have to kind of walk through them, and I'll tell you what their true opinion is, which of course is mine. No, I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what I think about it, but um, I actually do think if you think about the setting, it sort of helps you figure out which view is right. But uh, Plus just paying close attention. We're, we always want to pay close attention. So anyway, if it seems a little technical, don't drift away. To learn how to handle the Bible when this sort of thing comes up. So, um, anyway, that's where we are. Uh, so John wrote 1 John. A lot of you weren't here for all of 1 John, so we're having a lot of new faces lately. So um, let me kind of back up and give, give you the setting again and why he wrote the book. Those of you that have been here are going to go, okay, you're going to tell us why he wrote Yes, I am. So just stay with it. You could probably tell me, but... Um, He's dealing with the first real serious challenge to Christianity from within. In other words, a cult version of Christianity that was beginning to show in the end of the first century when John is writing and became the, a, a serious threat to Christianity in the second century. And it was called Gnosticism, right? We've talked about that a lot. They corrupted the faith and denied every doctrine of the Christian faith by reinterpreting the gospel and who Jesus is in the light of current Greek philosophy as it was in the first century, that what people were drawn to in the first century. So if people loved philosophy or thought that that's where the wisdom was, but they were also drawn to Jesus, they used Jesus to create this cultic religion called Gnosticism, okay? Gnostic means knowing ones, and we get our word knowledge from the word Gnostic, actually, and so it, it's, it's to know something, and these are secret sayings, secret sayings of Jesus. And the main ideas of Gnosticism, we've talked about a bunch of times, but we don't have a sin problem. That's a very modern idea, too, but that was going on in the first century. We don't have a sin problem. They said that the, our problem is we're trapped in these physical bodies. We have wonderful spirits who are trapped. And this weird God who's the God of the Old Testament, some kind of, uh, they don't believe he's the infinite God or anything like that. So some God made the earth and made this corrupt physical world and trapped our souls in these wretched physical bodies. It actually has an element of truth in it because we do have wretched physical bodies. I mean, we're, we're drawn to sin and they, they mess up all the time and we have all kinds of problems. So they, they, they saw that, but they, they, didn't, they didn't teach the fall of man, that God made everything good and man fell. They didn't teach that. They said this evil God or stupid God made this world and trapped all of our bodies in it. So the world is a prison house and our bodies are prison cells where our souls are, are caught and longing to be free. So we don't need forgiveness. We need to be free. So it's also sort of a hippie, hippie thing. <laughs> the Gnostic view of Jesus was that he was not the eternal God, God in the flesh who dwelt among us. They taught that 
one of the lesser deities floating around in space, wanted to solve the problem created by this God who made our world. So he came down and found this man, Jesus, and inhabited him for a while to reveal secret knowledge to us. And then this guy got in trouble and they nailed him to a cross so that this, this being left him to die on the cross. And that, that being, that entity, is called the Christ. And there's the man, Jesus, and this Christ entity who kind of inhabited him. That's what they taught. And he inhabited him to give us the secret knowledge that would deliver us from this prison house we are. See, see, that's not exactly Christianity. <laughs> in fact, it's like totally kooky. But, um, but actually, it did appeal to people in the first century because the Greeks believed that spirit is good and the physical world is evil. I mean, that's kind of what, that was the general thing going on in the first century. So they interpreted Jesus through that lens and came up with this whole crazy scheme. There's a lot of versions of Gnosticism. They're not all the same, but I'm giving you the kind of the essence of it. So they believed that um, the Christ left Jesus when he was dying on the cross. They also wrote their own Gospels, who, who don't have hardly, there's almost no stories in their Gospels, it's just sayings, these mystical, esoteric sayings of Jesus, and they're very weird. Um, so don't tell you about Jesus, because that's not important, about his life or his ministry or anything like that, just, just these sayings. So, John wrote this letter because some people that were members of the churches in Asia Minor that he oversaw had left the church and joined this cult. And it had shaken the churches. How could these guys that seemed like us, that talked like us, that said they believed like us, suddenly go off into this weird cult? So that's why he's actually writing the letter. So um, it's all about that sort of theme there. So they left the real Jesus for a Jesus that fit the world's thinking, which happens today a lot. So um, does that sound familiar? So, um, so I wanted to kind of revisit that purpose because the, today's text, I think we can interpret it in the light of that setting and it helps us understand which of the views that good men have come up with is the correct one here. So, um, so the believers in those churches were asking, how do I know what a real Christian is? And so the other thing we've talked about in 1 John is that several times, he repeats the sequence several times, he gives three tests of, of what makes a person an authentic Christian and not a phony Christian or a Christian that might uh, just says all the right things but might end up leaving. You know, So what's a real Christian? That's what they wanted to know. How do we know the real people from the false people? So he gave three tests. One was the obedience test that a real Christian obeys God's commands. That's what he said. So they measure their lives not by their own will or, or sense of right and wrong but by what God says. They don't pick and choose moral obligations. They pursue faithfulness to what God has revealed in his holy word. So Jesus is a Lord to be obeyed, not a, a, a being to be ignored, right? So um, that's the first thing. The second thing is what we call the truth test or the doctrinal test, and that is Christians believe in the real Jesus that appears in the scriptures, not a Jesus you can just make up. And people do make up their own, like the Gnostics did. People do that today as well. But Jesus is the Christ. He's not possessed by the Christ. He's not a man that Christ fell on. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Christ just means Messiah. He's not a demigod. He's the eternal God become flesh. Christians believe that Jesus was true God and true man in the same person. And there's only one person in there. <laughs> That's him. In fact, John explained in chapter 2, verse 19, he talked about those who left the church. He said, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so it would be shown they were not all of us. So they never in their heart were really part of what was going on. He said, but you, this is 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. And then he asks a question in verse 22. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? See, there's the Gnostic thing he's attacking right there. He's not separate from the Christ. He is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Because whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father, because the Father sent the Son. 
He's also really clear in chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the Gnostics would, never, would say God would never become flesh. That the eternal God of all things would never become flesh. That's inconceivable. But he did. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the truth matters. So a real Christian obeys God's commands, seeks out to know what God wants them to do and does it. A true Christian believes what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. The third thing is the love test. And that's what we've been talking about a lot lately. Real believers love each other. They love the brethren. They lay down their lives for each other. He actually says that. The last time we started looking at chapter 5 where John reasserts each one of these tests and we learned, we learned there in chapter 5 that love and commandment keeping actually go hand in hand with each other. If you look back at, so we're at chapter 5, we look at verse 1 we talked about last week, but here it is. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And that was our subject last time. So I'm not going to go back all through that again. But that's really clear. So our love for each other really grows out of our love for God and our commitment to keep his commandments. And his commandment, of course, is to love one another. So we want to do that. Now we can move on to verse 5. That's our text for this week here, starting our portion for this week. And so here, John takes the idea of overcoming the world, achieving victory over our sin, our baser nature, the world's temptations. It's faith, he said, that overcomes... What does the overcomer believe? That's verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world, he says, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's it right there. Clear enough. Right belief. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. Jesus has come in the flesh. And then we come to the mysterious verse, the hard verse, verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And then verse 7 says, there are three that testify. And that's when people start going, huh? <laughs> so what exactly does he mean there? What's the water and what's the blood? And so over the centuries, you know, Bible students and commentators and theologians have wrestled with this text and saying, what does he mean exactly by the water and the blood? And if you hear those two words in relationship to Jesus, several different kinds of thoughts might pop into your head that relate to something else in Scripture. And that's what people do. That's what they go and they seek those things out and say, is that what he's saying? Because I can think of several things that popped into my head when I first read that. But uh, here's, so here's the three major views of what the water and the blood and all of that is, okay? So one is um, something really amazing happened on the cross that John remembered and wrote down. Remember, John was the only disciple of Jesus that was there, actually watching Jesus be crucified. Peter was gone crying somewhere and everybody else ran away, right? But John was with mom. Jesus' mom, and they were there watching what went on. So for him, it's a very vivid memory. John chapter 19, this is where this is recorded, verse 33. It says, After they came to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Yet one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately, you remember this? Blood and water came out. Now, medical people have, have thought through this through and examined what happened there, and one of the main theories is that there's this thing around your heart, it's called the pericardium, para means around, right? And cardia is your heart, it's around your heart, some kind of a membrane or thing, it's a thick thing that protects your heart. And um, they believe that that was filling with fluid while Jesus was um, on the cross because of the excruciating pain and the position he was in and all of that. 
and this pericardium kind of filled up and compressed his heart. And uh, some people believe he really literally died of a broken heart. But when they shoved the spear up through Jesus, it pierced that pericardium and into the heart. So the fluid and the blood came out in sort of individual streams. You could notice the separation there. It showed that he was dead is, is sort of the main idea here. So he says, he who has testified, this is verse 35 of John 19, he who has seen and testified and his testimony is true. He's talking about himself. And he knows that he is telling the truth because he was there so that you may believe. So you have blood and water and a guy giving testimony. So those three words all show up right there. Blood, water, and testimony. So that makes it a pretty strong idea that maybe that's what he's talking about. The problems with this view are several. One is that in John 19, John says he is testifying. He's not saying the blood and the water are testifying. He's saying he's doing it. So in verse 7, in 1 John 5, he says he's testifying. Or, um, or the blood, I mean, the blood and the water are doing the testifying. But in John 19, John's making a big point that he is the one testifying. So that's a difference. Also in John's letter, 1 John, he says Jesus Christ came through water and the blood. He came to us through that. But of course, in 1 John, in, I mean, in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, the blood and the water are coming from him, not... He's not coming through it. It's coming from him, from his body. So there is in the gospel passage, there's really hard to interpret a way that Jesus is coming through that, uh, the water and the blood. It doesn't quite fit. And finally, the point of the witness of John at the cross is not so much the blood and the water. It's that he's dead. That's the main emphasis there. In fact, I'm going to back up and read that passage, but I'm going to read a little bit more of it. So John 19.31, it says, Now then... Since the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews requested of Pilate that their legs be broken and their bodies be taken away. Now that's a really interesting thing. We often think of the Romans doing this monstrous cruelty, which they did do, but the Jews actually are asking for it because you're not supposed to allow a body to hang um, overnight. And usually on a cross, you could live several days, and it's possible that you could. So to prevent that, especially since it was a Sabbath day, they asked the Romans to break their leg. Why would they break their legs? To kill them. Because you couldn't breathe anymore. If you're being crucified, you have to push to breathe. Every breath you take, you've got to push up. So um, when you break their legs, they're going to suffocate to death. That's, so they'll die quickly. That's, what, that's why they're going to do it. Then verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, and of the other who was crucified with him. But after they came to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Yet one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who is seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. And then he says, I didn't read this before, for these things took place so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look at him on whom they have pierced. So in John 19, the emphasis of John as a witness is on the fulfillment of prophecy. It's not that, wow, it's an amazing thing, water and blood. It's, it's that water and blood situation proved that Jesus was already dead. That's why they didn't break his legs. He's testifying to that, that no bones were broken. That was the prophecy, that no bones would be broken. And then he mentions that he would be pierced, and that's what they did that revealed the blood and the water. So that's his emphasis there. So the two thieves had their bones broken, but not Jesus because he was dead. And that, and the blood and the water showed that he was already dead. That's the main idea there. So that idea doesn't totally line up either, I think, with 1 John chapter 5. Now, a lot of people hold that view, and it's perfectly fine, too. I just To me, it doesn't quite line up the right way. Um, so another view is that, uh, this is John Calvin's view, is that the water and the blood are the sacraments. So uh, taking communion. So the water uh, would be Christian baptism. You're initiating sacrament as you're a Christian, become a Christian, you get baptized. And then the blood would be the communion cup, right? So Calvin also links that to um, Old Testament purification, which the priests washed themselves before they went to present their sacrifice. And then the sacrifices would be the blood and worship. So he, he connected all of those. Now that makes sense to connect those ideas together. But communion isn't just the cup, right? It's, it's also the bread. And this doesn't have anything to do with the bread or mention the bread at all. So it doesn't quite fit either. 
you know, it, it makes sense though. I could totally see where he's coming from on that one. The third view, and this one I, I lean more towards, is that the water and the blood do represent Christ's baptism and then his crucifixion, his death for sin. So that's how he came to us. And the thing that's unique about that, and this is where it talks about the testimony, is that on both of those events, God literally spoke out of the sky for both of those things when Jesus came through water and through blood. And I'll show you that right now. So both at the beginning of his ministry and at the end, there was a direct testimony of God as to what was happening. So God actually speaks. So first at his baptism, you all know this story, I'm sure. Matthew chapter five, chapter 3, verse 16, says, After he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, so he's from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and setting on him. There's a testimony. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember that? So God testifies both by the presence of the Spirit and verbally at his baptism. And that begins Jesus' ministry. Then, three years later, during the Passion Week, you know, Jesus came on Sunday, uh, the, um, presented himself as the Messiah, they hailed him as the Messiah, rode the donkey into Jerusalem. And on the day or two after that, um, Jesus, this is John chapter 12, this is also John's Gospel, there's another heavenly declaration. So Jesus is, um, it's really an interesting scene. They come up and they tell Jesus, they say, some Greeks want to talk to you. And, it, and, and then he gives this really weird answer that has nothing to do with the Greeks wanting to talk to him. But it does show that the fame of Jesus was going far. Gentiles were coming to see him. But he's going to die as the Messiah for Israel first, right? So he's going to do that. So this is what Jesus says when they come up and they say, some Greeks want to speak to you. He says, this is John 12, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. And here it comes. Verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then, it says, a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John says, now he was saying this to indicate by what kind of death he was going to die. So the voice from heaven again that God is going to glorify himself and then Jesus says it's going to be through the cross through my being lifted up. So there's a voice at his baptism and there's a voice at the Passion Week speaking of the cross which is only days away. On top of that, the crucifixion itself has many um, signs from God. God is speaking through the events that happen there. The darkness that comes upon the whole scene at noon and an incredible darkness for that time, you know, in the middle of the day. And then an earthquake hits the moment he dies and what happens when that earthquake happens? Something happens at the temple and that super incredibly thick, heavy curtain just tears into, right? Which says no more need for sacrifice. No impediment to coming to God. The price has been paid. You can go straight to God now. That All of that happened at the moment Jesus died. So the debt for man's sin was paid in full. In my opinion, that's what 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 is pointing to. And I think it fits best 
Also, it stands in direct opposition to the Gnostic beliefs about Jesus, their opinions about Jesus. The man Jesus and the man Christ, the person of Christ, are not two separate entities or personalities. Jesus is the Christ, he says that, who came by water and by blood. See the idea of him coming by blood? That's a horrific idea to a Gnostic. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't become human, it wouldn't become blood. So Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he came by a real human body. He didn't just seem like it, he was. And he died. The Gnostics are wrong about everything from what John is saying there. So in this letter, John is sharing all kinds of wonderful truths. But because of what happened with the, the Gnostic problem that the church had, never giving an inch to error. John is never going to give an inch to error, so he's pointing out the truth. He's, con he's confronting Gnosticism by saying the truth about Jesus. He's the Christ, it's Jesus Christ, and he came through blood. He became truly human. God became a man. <clears throat> the real God, the infinite God, became a man and lived this, in this world. Verse 7 says then, in 1 John 5, for there are three that testifies. So we have the water, not just the experience of baptism, but the voice. And then we have the blood. We have the announcement during the Passion Week and then all the incredible signs that surrounded the crucifixion of Jesus and the death of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit. The Spirit testifies internally. The Holy Spirit is the one that tells our hearts that all of this is true. That that's who Jesus is. And that's what he's accomplished for us. So, um, back up to 1 John 3, 24. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So there are outside witnesses to Christ, God speaking, and then the signs around the crucifixion. And then there's the internal witness, and that's the Holy Spirit. So those three agree. That's, that's the idea. Okay, now, we've gotten that far. I'm going to ask you to completely shift your mind into another gear. <laughs> All right? And then I want you to take out that handout that's in your in your bulletin there. Oh, yeah, I should take out my handout that's in the bulletin. I might need that. So it looks like a white piece of paper, and it says NASB 1995 and NKJV. You know what that stands for? New, New Kingdom. Good, 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 good. So, all paying great attention. So we have to talk about this text problem, too, with today for this thing. In my New American Standard Bible, and it's right there on the thing, verse 7 says, there are three that testify. Period. That's it. That's verse 7. If you look over at the New King James side, it says, for there are three that bear witness. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. And then, it picks up in verse 8, right where my New American Standard is, the spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. So, the letters that are in blue, and for the sake of our sermon, I'm going to call them the blue letters. Okay? Or the blue, the blue words. Okay? The blue words. Um, those words are not in any modern translation of the Bible. And there's a good reason for that. Now, interestingly... I use, my, I use my New King James Bible when I do um, weddings and, and uh, funerals and things like that. And I love the King James Bible. I love it. I mean, because it's so beautiful. I mean, the language is unsurpassed. And I like the New King James because it throws out the stuff that people can't even understand anymore from the 16th century or 17th century. <laughs> Good news for 17th century man. That's what the old King James Bible is. But I love the new one. And I was shocked because I looked this up just this week and I said, well, I'm going to see what it if it brackets the blue words in this, or it says anything about it, they're not in this particular one. They're actually in a little note at the bottom. So this is a New King James Bible that doesn't include those words. But at the very bottom, it says, verse 8, a passage found in only four or five very late Greek manuscripts. Which is exactly why it does not appear in any modern translation. The blue words don't appear in any modern translation. So if you have a King James Version, um, you have got those words in there, probably, unless they're 
different, like my New King James is. So if you have a King James or a New King James, they probably have those blue words in your Bible, right? Hopefully they'll have some kind of a notation or a margin and say, this does not appear in early manuscripts or something like that. So I want to talk about that whole thing, because as long as we're here and we've got this sort of textual issue, let's talk about the whole idea. We could talk for hours about this. By the way, if you want to look this up, the blue, the blue words are called, and among scholars, they're called the Johannine, that just means it's from John. <laughs> the Johannine comma. That's what it's called. So if you want to Google that, you can read whole articles about it. But don't do it right now. Do it, do it after lunch. But um, right now, listen to everything I'm going to say. So we're going to talk about manuscripts and where the Bible comes from and all of that kind of stuff. And so this is a new subject, right? So there are hundreds, there's actually thousands of Greek New Testament manuscripts that we have from before the time of the printing press. There are thousands of them. There are about 500 manuscripts of First John, okay? Now, anytime you're copying something by hand, anybody ever do that? Copy a paragraph by hand, you read it, you copy, you read it, you copy. You usually make mistakes. It's, it's hard to do it perfectly. So any Greek manuscript, unless they're like super professional scribes, and even those guys make mistakes, they make a line two times. Plus, in Greek, the, the, if you read an ancient Greek manuscript, they don't separate the words. They're just, it looks like just a line of letters. You've got to be able to discern the words in there. So that makes it even harder when you're copying to get a really good copy, you know? Plus, sometimes the, 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 the copyist, a guy would be reading the text and they'd have five or six scribes out there writing down what he's reading. And if he didn't read clearly or the guy didn't hear it clearly or whatever, he might get a wrong word in there or a wrong ending of a word or something, you know, just different spellings and things like that. So little things creep into manuscript text all the time. It's just the nature of hand copying. It's, it, it can't be perfect and it never is. Um, but uh, there are, so we have so many manuscripts. We have so many, thousands, and like I said, First John, there's like 500 now that we have. We can compare them and see where these little slips come in. And so oh, and there's sort of families of manuscripts, you know, there's about four major families from different parts of the world. And you can see where the little differences are. And oh, that kind of ended, that kind of entered there about, you know, this year, this period of time anyway. And, and so manuscripts after that sort of follow that mistake or that little thing. And the, your Bible will often have in the margin, you know, some manuscripts don't have this or they say this word. Sometimes it's just like Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. Or, you know, Luke has a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer than Matthew. But if you say the Lord's Prayer every day for Matthew and you're copying Luke, you're going to write out the whole Lord's Prayer. So it ends up in some copies of Luke, just like Matthew, as opposed to the shorter version. And things like that, you know, normal human things. There's a whole art to manuscripts and copying that people study and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, that's kind of what happened with 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Uh, you've, you've heard of the Renaissance? You know the Renaissance? So, um, kind of leading into the Reformation, right after the uh, Middle Ages, and of course it all bled together, but uh, the 1300s, the 1400s, and the 1500s, uh, there was this burst of art and literature and scholarship. Um, they were re... The reason why Renaissance statues look like Greek statues is because they wanted to imitate the Greeks. It was kind of a rebirth of Greek learning the Greek language, which hadn't been spoken in the West for a really long time. All of that was going on at the same time. So before that, although there were efforts to translate the Bible, like the Wycliffe people translated the Bible into English really early and got burned, and burned the stake for it. But um, basically every Bible in every church in Western Europe was Latin. It was in Latin. It was called the Latin Vulgate, translated by Jerome into Latin in the 5th century, and then it just kind of, 4th century, and then it kept going up, being copied and copied and copied. So that goes way back. It's called the Latin Vulgate. The Catholic Church still uses that today, some version of it. <coughs> so the words you see in blue were not in any Greek manuscripts, any Greek manuscripts that we find at First John in the ancient world. But they are in the Latin Vulgate about 600, a few hundred years after the Latin Vulgate was originally translated, those words started to show up in some manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate. Not in the oldest Latin Vulgate manuscripts, but at some point. And the words come from a sermon that was done on the Trinity. And you can actually see it in the manuscripts when you get to 1 John 
and, the, and a scribe is copying it down, in the margin, he'll write these sort of famous words from this sermon that was explaining it in a Trinitarian way. Because in the 4th century, the big ar argument was whether Jesus was fully God or not. So there were people wrestling about that. It was a huge issue that led to the Council of Nicaea and all of that. So um, that was a big thing. Arians didn't believe Jesus was fully God. He was sort of a lesser God. And Orthodox people like us believe, of course, Jesus is God. That's what it says. And this, this, these words that were sort of put in the margin of the Latin Vulgate showed that they thought this, that the three witnesses are one, and then they could, by adding these words in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, that clinches sort of the Trinitarian idea. Well, people love that. Now, if you're a scribe and you see something in the margin, you've got two choices. So you've got several choices. You could say, oh, that's a marginal note. I don't need it. Or you could say, that's a cool marginal note. I think I'll include it. I'll, I'll just put it in the margin of my copy. Or you could say, oh, this guy meant to have that in there, and he forgot it, or he skipped a few lines, and so I'll put it in. <laughs> and that, that's a perfectly logical conclusion. You know, oh, I see. He, he, like we copyists are always making mistakes. And, and then, so anyway, it, it got in. And after that, Latin copies of, of the Bible tended to have it. Not all did, but a lot did. No Greek manuscripts had it until 1,500 years later, basically. So, so when people are doing their, their work and comparing all of these manuscripts and creating the Greek text that we're going to use to translate the New Testament in modern times, you just look at it and you go, it's not even there in any of them. So that's why in your Bible it probably isn't there. Now, in my New American Standard Bible, it does have a little note at verse 8, and it says a few late manuscripts add, in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. It's in the margin, just like they would do it in the margin in those days. So let me get kind of down to brass tacks about why it appeared in the King James Bible, but not in some other Bibles or not in modern Bibles. So there was a scholar during the Renaissance. For some reason, you have to kind of... Raise yourself up a little when you say Renaissance because it's a classy period of time. But um, he said the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. But, um, so there was a scholar named Erasmus. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther. Erasmus was old when Luther was young. And Erasmus was uh, Catholic and committed Catholic, but um, not that into doctrine, but um, really big on the reforming of the Catholic Church. In fact, he wrote this wonderful book, I read it many years ago, called In Praise of Folly, just tearing the Catholic Church to shreds for all the hypocrisy and the, the money and the, the riches and the way it had corrupted the Christian faith, but not attacking the doctrine at all. Not at all. Not the doctrine, just the corruptions of the church. The same thing Martin Luther was pointing at, only Luther went after the doctrine, too. But anyway, Erasmus, as part of this Renaissance thing that was happening and this rebirth of Greek uh, studies and all of that, wanted to create a copy of the New Testament in Greek, using Greek manuscripts. There weren't a lot. There were about 10, and he used three main ones. So now we've got like 500. He had like maybe 10 overall, you know, that he could use to do that. So he's comparing, and he's looking, and he writes, he creates a text and publishes, because they had this new invention, a printing press. So that's one reason the Reformation happened, because Martin Luther's stuff got printed. So when you have a printing press, you don't have to worry about these guys copying, right? So he wanted to create a definitive Greek New Testament based on those manuscripts he had that would be printed, and he, he's the first guy to print a Greek uh, New Testament. So Martin Luther used the second edition of his Greek New Testament. And when he translated the Bible into German, guess what wasn't there? <laughs> the blue words. They don't appear in any German Bible because the German Bible was copied out of Erasmus's second edition of the Greek text. So he did the first edition, then he revised it a little bit and corrected some things he liked, and Luther used the second edition. Well, the Catholic Church came to Erasmus and said, you're a heretic, aren't you? <laughs> he goes, no, no, not a heretic. And he goes, they go, why are you denying the Trinity? Why did you cut that out of the Bible? That's in our Latin Bible. It goes way back. And he said, you know what? I've been doing this manuscript. I'm, I'm paraphrasing conversation. You know what? <laughs> he, said, he said, you know what? I've been comparing all these Greek manuscripts and uh, it's not in any of them. And they said, well, you need to put it in. And he said, well, you bring me a Greek manuscript that has it 
and I'll put it in. So this guy in England created a Greek manuscript <laughs> and put it in. And they brought it to him. And he said, that's pretty sloppy Greek. <laughs> and they said, you said, if we brought you a Greek manuscript, you put it in. I'll put it in. I'll put it in. So he did. Um, he actually put it in there in the third edition. So all of that happened. Erasmus, again, only had these few things. I'm going to show you a couple pictures. Can you throw up the first one? So this is actually Erasmus's second edition. And there's the printed text in the middle, the Greek and the, the Latin's over there. And on the left, he put it in the margin. So the, the, the edition Luther had, it did have it. He, he wrote it in the margin. And they knew that it was in the margin. But that's his handwriting, so that's actually the printed text, and there's his handwriting. <laughs> so, now, we have one more picture. This is the third edition. And I know you can't read it, but now it's in the text. <laughs> and it was, a, it was that edition, and there was a fourth and fifth edition as well. But um, the King James Bible came from people, when the, the scholars got together to create the King James Bible, using the later editions, and some other editions after, you know, that was 1611, so we're talking about 100 years later, and there were multiple editions of the Greek New Testament other scholars working on, but they all followed Erasmus in keeping that. So that's why it's in your Bible if you've got a King James or a New King James Bible. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, by the mid-1800s, you can take those down now. By the mid-1800s, new translations are being done of the Bible. The King James kind of ruled the English-speaking world for a long time. But then other translations were being done. By then, archaeologists had discovered many, many more manuscripts, and some that are very, very old, very old Greek manuscripts. So that's why none of the new translations since the 1800s include the Johannine comma. They're not in there because they're not in any of the Greek manuscripts. But often, like even my Bible today, my New American Standard Bible, it does have it in the margin and says some later manuscripts included. So that's the simple version of a kind of a long and complicated story there. But um, why does it matter? Well, it kind of matters for us because people in our circles, not our direct circles, but in our wider circles, um, there's a whole wing of fundamental Christianity that believes that the King James Bible is the most pure version of the Bible in the world. More pure, even. Some of them say more pure than the Greek and the Hebrew Bible. It's like, and they have this theology, this thing they developed where God says, I purify my word seven times, and they come up with seven translations. They go, ah, now it's pure, the King James Bible. They're so committed to defending the Johannine comma and things like that, that they literally built a theology, just like the Catholics do. They made up a theology to support their doctrine. And uh, it's kind of kooky a little bit, but they're very serious about it. And uh, where I used to live, we used to live down in Southern, there was a King James only church. That was on their sign, you know. And there's a lot of King James, well, there's a very large one in Lancaster. That's a King James only church. But I don't think they're quite that far. But, um, but we have to deal with that sometimes. Because they look at us and they would say, oh, what Bible translation do you use? <laughs> well, I have the New American Standard, 1995. I love it because it's one of the most literal translations. Heretic. Compromise. <laughs> How can you compromise the pure word of God? <laughs> and so then they get all mad and all that kind of stuff. So um, they think they're protecting the Trinity by keeping the blue words. But there are so many verses about the Trinity. You don't need the blue words to teach the Trinity. You absolutely. In fact, the earliest manuscripts we have of the Greek New Testament are more Trinitarian in other verses than some of the later ones in just little subtle ways. For example, in um, John chapter 1, it calls Jesus the only begotten Son. Well, in the really early manuscripts, it's, it's, he's called the only begotten God, which is even more direct and clear, right? So things like that. Now again, if you look at your Bible really carefully and look at those little tiny writings on the side of the margin sometimes, they'll tell you. This man, some manuscripts say. or So there's several places in the New Testament where there's some significant portions, but just a few places. But this is one of those places where there's like a key idea and it's questionable. But this one's not even questionable in my opinion. It's like it doesn't belong in there. Okay, I hope that helps you kind of understand that. Um, 
But, but one thing you should know if you ever run into a King James only person is no translation is better than the original languages. God designed the Bible to be written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic a little bit in the Old Testament. So no translation is perfect. No translation is perfect. Because just the work of men. Anyway, but you can get substantive truth out of all of it. All right, so my whole point is there's no reason to cling to the blue words. Nothing is hurt by dropping them out because they don't really belong there. All right, now, so, time. So far, we've had our example of a difficult-to-interpret passage, and we looked at three possible options to interpret it, and we've had a lesson on the variations of the Bible in texts and manuscripts and things like that. So... Give me five minutes to tell you what John is actually talking about for you, okay? <laughs> this is the mini-sermon on the back of the, all that information. So if you've drifted away, come back, come back. <laughs> Let's look at the verse 7 that we all have. For there are three that testify. So you'll remember that in the law of Moses, every fact is established on the basis of two or three witnesses, right? Remember that in the law? Mm -hmm. So these are three witnesses. We have the three witnesses here. Verse 8 gives us the three, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. No blue, no blue words. The three witnesses agree, he says. So we have our declaration from God at Jesus' baptism. We have the spirit actually appearing there. We have the declaration from heaven during the Passion Week about the cross, and then we have all the signs at the cross, the water and the blood. We have the testimony of the spirit as well. He testifies internally in our hearts that these things are true. That's why we believe them. So now John spells it all out for us, what it all means, and this is what God wants you to hear about his son. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. And we just talked about different ways he's done that. But all of this is about God bearing witness to Jesus Christ, his son. Remember how his letter began, John's letter began. Just flip back to chapter 1 real quick. And let me read to you how this letter started. Remember, John was a close companion of Jesus. Out of the 12 disciples, there were three intimate disciples that were even closer than the others. They, they saw more and they heard more from Jesus. And John was one of those. This is what he said at the beginning. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So we have John's testimony. He was a witness. We have God's testimony too. So he's bringing that in. The spirit and the water and the blood. We have all the information we could possibly want. So men can testify, he's saying in verse 9, and we can weigh what the men say about their testimony. But when God testifies, we are obligated to accept his testimony and believe what he wants us to believe and put our trust in whatever he says. So really, how hard is that to do that, to trust God? Because it's the best news in the world that he's given us about Jesus. That's the greatest thing you could ever hear. He wants us to believe that he loves us. He wants to believe us to believe that he loves us so much that in our wicked, depraved condition, he sent his son to pay our complete sacrifice that will cover all of our sins so that we can live with him joyfully as his children in heaven forever. Hallelujah. Thank you, sir. <laughs> he bore the penalty of all of our sins. So who can resist the goodness and the wisdom and the love of Jesus? Lots of people. Rebels resist. Only those who don't want God interfering in their lives, they resist. 
They're going to take their chances. They, they reject God's love. Now pay attention to verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. So the Spirit bears witness, like I said, internally, that everything that God says is true. If you put your faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Spirit confirms that within you. He is present and witnessing to you on the inside, in your heart. The heart being the Bible's word for your true self. The part of you, that's the part of you that has agency, that makes choices, that um, reasons and chooses based on its own reasoning. The Holy Spirit awakens our hearts, tells us the truth, and we proceed based on what we know from him. Now, if you don't believe, John says, in effect, you're calling God a liar because he's borne witness to all these things. So that's how clear-cut the choice is. You believe the witness of God or you don't. You reject it. God sent his son for your salvation that you may be his child forever. If you reject this most necessary and perfect gift that God has brought to you, then you must think it's a lie. But think again what God is actually testifying to because eternal life is bound up in what he says. God is bearing witness. Verse 11. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Verse 12. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You know, Jesus said about himself, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. That's us. He's not talking about your lost spoons and stuff. You're missing socks. He's talking about you. Our sins separate us from God, and that separation is forever unless we are reconciled to him. And the Son came to reconcile us to God. So we can say, no, I don't want to be reconciled to God, but he says we can be in God's Son. The reconciliation is offered in the Son who came to achieve reconciliation for all who trust in him. Reconciliation means your sins are forgiven. It means you have peace with your creator when he's angry at you because of your sins, but he won't be angry anymore because Jesus paid for your sins. It means joy forever in the presence of God for eternity. That's what reconciliation means. That's what he's done for us. Only Christ, Jesus, is God in the flesh. So there's a really stark choice. We go his way or we go our own way. His way is life, eternal life. So you want to choose well, right? You want to choose well. God has testified that Jesus is his son and that in him is eternal life. Just trust him. Just trust him. Let's pray. Our great God, you've given us so much. A perfect Savior and many witnesses, those who saw, those who heard, your voice speaking approvingly of your son, what happened at the cross, the extraordinary events you surrounded that event with, so they were witnessed. And you say in your word that eternal life is in your son. And when we are tr entrust ourselves to him, that life belongs to us. We believe and we rest our souls in your proven mercy O oh, great King, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.